You must believe, boy. You must believe. The wounded Dr. Henry Jones whispered these words as his son Indy faced the leap of faith as part of a dramatic scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The scriptwriters may not have intended to, but when they wrote that line for the film, they were echoing chapter 11, verse 6 of the Bible's book of Hebrews, where we're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say difficult or challenging. It says impossible. Because what God desires is a relationship with us. That's what pleases Him. And it's not possible for us to have a relationship with an invisible God without faith. It's absolutely essential. So I think you'd agree that learning all we can about it would be important for those of us seeking to know God. And that's why I'd like to spend a few minutes with you looking at a Bible passage that recounts an episode in Jesus' ministry illustrating three different types of faith. So I invite you to open your Bible, either a paper version or an app on your phone, and locate the Gospel of John chapter 4. I'm going to be reading from the section that starts with verse 46, and I'd love for you to follow along. And I think you'll really find it helpful to have the words in front of you. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. That's abbreviated NKJV. And if you're using an app, you may want to select that in your settings to make it easier to follow. Before I read the scripture, though, let me just take a moment to thank our pastors, Marcus and Brenda Rabb, for allowing me the privilege of opening God's Word with you today and for their expression of trust that conveys. I truly consider it an honor. Now let's get started. The final nine verses of John chapter 4 describe an encounter Jesus had with an unnamed nobleman whose son was dying and how Jesus healed the boy. Verses 46 and 47 say this, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water to wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Galilee is the northern region of Israel where Jesus' home city of Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee are located. And Judea is the southern region where Jerusalem is. Cana is the city where Jesus performed his first miracle. And we're informed that he had just returned there after having spent time down south. We're also told that there was a nobleman or royal official about 15 miles away in another Galilean city called Capernaum and that his son was sick. We aren't given his name and we don't know exactly what his nobility was in reference to. But he clearly was esteemed, well-known, probably wealthy, and most likely highly educated. And he was so desperate to get help for his dying son that he was willing to humble himself and travel the 15 miles from, from Capernaum to Cana to find this guy named Jesus who had a reputation for being able to work miracles just in case there was anything he could do. Now, 15 miles doesn't sound like a lot to us. We wouldn't think twice about getting in the car and driving that far if we needed to. But when you're on foot, that's a half day's journey. He traveled all that way in the hope of maybe getting Jesus to do something. Skip down to verse 49. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This desperate father implored Jesus to act quickly 
Time was short. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. Now, put yourself in the nobleman's shoes. All of us, when we come to God with our needs, have a picture that we've painted in our minds of what he should do as well as when and how he should do it. It's human nature. And surely he had to have had a mental image of how this should go. We can tell because he said, come down with me. He'd already imagined that if Jesus agreed to help, he would quickly travel back to Capernaum with him. And he must have pictured what Jesus would do when they got there. Perhaps wave his hands over the boy and say some magic words or something. But Jesus didn't do any of that. He just said, go on home, your son is okay. And the amazing thing is he placed his trust in what Jesus said, turned around and headed for home. Verse 51, as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him saying, your son lives. Wow, before he even made it home, he was met by servants coming to tell him his son had been healed. Verses 52 and 53. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday, the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. Of course they did, wouldn't you? But it's interesting to note, we've already seen that belief was ascribed to him in verse 50 when he acted on his trust in what Jesus said. He'd already expressed belief. And then as he rejoiced in the glorious outcome, we're told again that he believed, indicating there is more than one type of faith. And I think this account actually illustrates three of them. The first is what I call, what have I got to lose faith? And it's based on what Jesus might do. It's the kind of faith the nobleman exercised when he traveled all the way from Capernaum to Cana to see if Jesus could help his dying son. And it's the kind of faith that often motivates our desperate prayers for help when we find ourselves facing challenging circumstances. It's not very deeply rooted, but it is a form of faith all of us can relate to. There's nothing wrong with what have I got to lose faith. It's the starting point of everyone's journey in belief. But it's not sufficient for the long haul. It needs to mature from that beginning point. Then there's what I call, what an amazing God we have faith. And it's based on what Jesus has done. It's the kind of faith experienced by the royal official after receiving the news that his son had been healed. This is the kind of exultant, shout it from the rooftop faith we all hope to experience as we rejoice in the answer to a prayer. It's an easy kind of faith that erupts unbidden from our grateful hearts. In those moments, we feel we could believe God for anything. And all of us hope that we will be able to jump directly from what have I got to lose faith to what an amazing God we have faith. We want our desperate cries to God to always result in immediate and triumphant answers to prayer. But most of the time, a third type of faith needs to be exercised in the space between the other two. I call it, what am I gonna do faith? And it's based on what Jesus has said. 
It's the kind of faith the nobleman exercised when he chose to obey the Lord's command to return home, trusting what Jesus had said about his son having been healed. This is a much more mature faith and demands more of us spiritually, but it's the kind of faith God is always seeking to develop in us when we face life's trials. Why is this type of faith so important? Because relationships are built on trust and obedience is evidence of that trust. And the thing that moves God's heart most is having a relationship with us. I hope this doesn't sound insensitive, but the Lord is far more interested in that than answering our prayers. It's not that he doesn't care about our needs. It's not that he isn't capable of miraculously meeting those needs. It's not that he doesn't want to or won't answer our prayers. It's just that relationship is far more important. It's why Jesus bled and died on a cross. And developing a what am I gonna do faith is critical to the health of that relationship. Consider a parent-child relationship. When it's healthy, the, the child is secure in their parents' love. That results in a deep trust, and that trust is evidenced by an unhesitating obedience. So when that child is about to run out into a busy street and they hear their parent yell, stop, they do, simply because their parents said to. They have faith that any command from mom or dad is motivated by love and must be for their good. On the other hand, if the kid continues heading for the street asking why, demanding a reason for their obedience, or if their compliance requires the threat of punishment, stop or I'll get, you'll get a timeout, or the promise of reward, stop and I'll give you an ice cream, it indicates that something's wrong with the relationship. In the same way, if our obedience to God is only on the basis of satisfactory explanations, threat of punishment, or promise of reward, it reveals a lack of faith in or trust in God's love. Something's wrong with the relationship. But when we're responsive to his voice with quick and careful obedience to what he says, it demonstrates health and how we relate to him and the depth of confidence we have in his goodness. Living our lives under the canopy of that grace is richly soul-securing, peace-producing, and joy-generating. It's also the environment that makes room for God to move miraculously on our behalf. I'm sure that some of you are squaring off against desperate need right now for a healing, a job, financial provision, marital problems. And you may be thinking, okay, I get it. God wants the kind of relationship with me where obedience naturally flows from my faith in His love. And I understand that that kind of faith unleashes His power to meet my needs. But how in the world can I act on what he's saying? I can't hear his voice. Well, I don't mean to scold or seem uncaring and unkind, but yes, you have. Yes, you have. Right now, most of you listening to me are holding in your hands a transcript of what he's said to you. The Bible is God speaking to us. Like the nobleman, we just need to lay aside our preconceptions about what, when, and how Jesus should be answering our requests and instead exercise what am I going to do faith based on what he's said. If you need somewhere to start, how about the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20? Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Is there anything holding a higher priority than God in your life right now? Okay, there you go. You've just heard God saying something you can obey, right? How about number two? You shall not make for yourself a carved image. 
Is there any way in which you have been shaping your image of God after what you think he ought to look like, sound like, and do, rather than on what he's revealed of himself in the Bible? How about number three? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Should I go on? <laughs> There's plenty to choose from. Pick something. When you do, you'll be pressing into the kind of deeper relationship that allows him to do amazing things in response. In 2013, I sat alone in a surgical waiting room, unsure if I'd ever see my wife Sue alive again. She'd been diagnosed based on the results of two major abdominal surgeries, a panoply of tests, and two different types of imaging with stage four, untreatable, incurable, and terminal cancer. The doctors had told us she was winding down, their exact words, and that we needed to get her affairs in order. But that morning, they were performing a third surgery to try and debulk the cancer to provide a short extension to her life, and I was afraid. I had been crying out to God for a miracle for five years by then, ever since her original diagnosis in 2008. And that day as I sat there, I was prayed out. But I heard God whisper to my heart, trust me. Part of me wanted to say, trust you, that's the best you've got. How about a miraculous rewinding of the past five years, back to the time when cancer wasn't part of our story? If you can't do that, how about a flash of lightning, an angelic visitation, an audible voice from heaven declaring an end to this nightmare? But I held my tongue, and that moment of anger, fear, and frustration passed. And I made the decision to choose instead, to bury my heart deep into the embrace of the one who loves us more than we can know. And I heard again, trust me. I really wasn't sure how to obey his command, but I remembered 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And I silently prayed, Lord, even in the midst of these circumstances, I know you love me, and I choose to trust in your love. I'm not sure how long it was after that simple prayer. In my memory, it seems like moments, but I saw the surgeon enter the waiting room and call for me to join him in a private office. It seems like it all happened in slow motion now as I look back, but I know the fear had left me. And as I made my way toward the open door, I felt a deep peace. He closed the door behind me and began speaking with a pained expression on his face. And it took me a moment or two for my mind to catch up, but he was saying that he knew I was a Christian he said he knew I had friends who were praying for Sue, and he wanted me to ask them to keep it up. He wasn't finished with the surgery yet, but he said he'd been sending tissue samples to the lab throughout the operation, and every report was coming back negative for cancer. No trace of the lesions could be found. I left that room stunned and overwhelmed with the power and love of God. I called one of my daughters and I was so hysterical she thought I was trying to tell her Sue had died. What I was really trying to do was find a way to force words out of a voice tight with emotion that might be able to come close to describing a joy that's indescribable. I was experiencing what an amazing God we have faith. And yes, I did a little happy dance right there. 
Sue's cancer scans have been completely clear ever since, and the medical record of what God has done has left many doctors over the years since unable to explain it. I can't either. But I know that the Almighty God took my simple, what am I gonna do faith and accomplished something amazing. I can't know what types of challenges you're facing today, but I do know they provide you with an opportunity to hold tightly to God's word, trust it, act on it, and discover what an amazing God we have. But some of you might not even be convinced there is a God. You're listening to this because you've become curious about Him, and as you've been listening, you've sensed something tugging at your heart. Dear one, that something is a someone. Jesus is inviting you to place your what have I got to lose faith in Him today. This could be the moment you begin your journey in belief. And if you're ready, I'd like to lead you in a simple prayer of response. Just hitchhike on my prayer, repeating after me, but letting the words flow from your own heart. Jesus, I don't know much about you, but I know this about me. I need you. So right now, I stand before you to place my faith in you. Please take my life, do whatever you need to in me, for me, through me, that I might have a relationship with you for the rest of my days and on into eternity. Thank you. Amen. God bless you, dear one. He's heard your prayer.